0: Click the link in the show notes or visit orderct.com slash graduate gifts to order now. This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Joy Challenge. Discover the ancient secret to experiencing worry-defeating, circumstance-defying happiness. Written by pastor and best-selling author Randy Frazee and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold.
1: Hello, this is Russell Moore, and you're listening to Signposts. And I've been looking forward to this conversation for quite some time. I have in front of me a, a copy of the new book brand new by NT Wright and Michael Bird called The New Testament in Its World an Introduction to the History, Literature and Theology of the First Christians you know a lot of books come in here this is one of the unusual uh, books where two copies had come in because I had ordered one pre-ordered one a long time ago on Amazon and then mm-hmm. one came in from the publisher and two of my colleagues were Kind of arguing about who would get the other uh, <laughs> copy because there was a lot of uh, excitement about this. It. A beautiful book and uh, really, really helpful, uh, Professor Wright. I wanted to ask you. I noticed the first thing when I opened the book in in one of the endorsements from Craig Blomberg, it said this book is partly a Cliff's Notes. Of NT writes uh, the uh, New Testament and the people of God, and I thought it's not often that a 988-page <laughs> volume would be called a <laughs> Cliff's Note. Uh, wh- what uh, what what is the mission of this uh, of this volume? What what are you int- intending to uh, to do?
2: What we really want to do in this book, the New Testament in its world, is is what it says on the tin, to plunge the readers into the world of the first century, the world which we know through history, through the literature of the time, et cetera, and to show what it means to read the New Testament within that context. And you might think, you know, it doesn't sound like rocket science, but actually this isn't what the church has often done. The church has often picked up the Bible, assumed that this is God's word, to me today, and so therefore I can just read it without knowing anything really about its context. And the answer is, you can do that, and God is gracious, and God's Spirit can leap over our ignorances and speak to us anyway. But again and again throughout church history, and I think it really needs to happen urgently today, the church has had to go back to say, hang on, what did this originally mean? What was this all originally about? And it's amazing how refreshing that is. So it's an introduction for students, um, this book, and it, it, it boils down into one volume, the work that I've been doing over the last 30 years, which Mike Bird, who's a, a young Australian scholar, has mm-hmm. helped me with pulling it all together, so that rather than wade through um, five or six large tomes, plus a lot of small the ones. You've got this one chunky book, and I have to say, for the sake of your listeners who may not have seen it, um, in those 900-odd pages, there are a lot of pictures and charts and diagrams and, and datelines and that sort of thing, so that it isn't all just straight prose from top of the page to the bottom of the page. So I hope it'll be a very much a user-friendly way of plunging people in, students and others, into the, what it says, the world of Jesus' day.
1: Well, you, you mentioned uh, that about knowing uh, the back Background of, of the text. One of the things that I have appreciated about your work is that uh, you explain uh, the backgrounds, but you don't do uh, what um, what many people tend to do, which is to give the impression anyway. Unless you understand everything about archaeology and culture, then then the Bible can't be for you.
2: Yeah, well, well, quite. Uh, I mean, when I was young, I-, I knew quite a lot of elderly clergymen because my grandfather and various other relatives were elderly clergymen and they had friends. And I noticed as a young man that in their Own studies and libraries, they would have books like books like Alfred Edersheim's book, *The Life and Times Mm -hmm. of Jesus the Messiah*, and they would often have a translation of Josephus as well, often Whiston's Josephus. And this was sort of standard fare because you imagine if a Christian just thinks, "Well, here's the Bible; it's my book, and I open it, and here's some stuff about the Pharisees and the Sadducees." Well, who are the Pharisees and the Sadducees, for goodness' sake? How are you going to know that? And there's an awful lot of, and that's quite at a basic level. But then when you say, well, the Pharisees were the aristocrats, so they didn't believe in resurrection because it seemed like a revolutionary doctrine. We're already taking two or three steps beyond where most ordinary Christians today would be. They might just know that the Sadducees were a particular party within the Jewish world at the time. And so, again and again, Even a little bit of knowledge can shed a flood of light on stuff. But as I say, I insist. I mean, I've been reading the Bible all my life, and I didn't know a lot of this stuff to start off with, but God spoke to me through it. And God can, as I say, leap over our ignorances, which is just as well, because even if we've got PhDs and books to our name, there's still vast areas that we don't yet know about. And and so for me, it's never an either or. It's got to be a both and. You know,
1: there was a line in a little book that I read last year that has stayed with me uh, consistently, and and it said uh, this, we have a generation of Bible quoters and not Bible readers, and uh, the the reason that that resonated with me is because I find it uh, true, and not not just among the laity, but among people who would consider themselves to be very theologically sophisticated, (laughs) but who know how to argue controversies. But who don't actually know how to know the narrative of Scripture for one thing? Uh, Am I reading that accurately?
2: I, I totally agree with you, and sadly, this has infected even good Orthodox theological circles. Where, and I think, I think the way it goes is this: that I know a lot of. Theologians my age and a bit younger, who when they were studying were bored by the way that they were taught Bible because mm. they were taught about sources and about text criticism and this and that, and the things seemed to be being pulled apart and never quite being put back together again. So they got a bit of this and a bit of that, but they never really got that. And then they went into a systematic theology class or an ethics class or something, and they thought, oh wow, at last we're talking about God and the world, and this is where I want to be. Mm. And so they look back on the Bible as a source book for for quotes that you can sort of drop in, but the argument has been constructed somewhere else, and that's so at a popular level as well. So it's been really my mission in life, so it seems. I didn't know this is what I going to spend my life doing, but Mm -hmm. it seems what I've done is to say, hang on, guys, this is what the Bible story is all about from Genesis to Revelation. It's about God and creation and God doing new creation all through the covenant and then the new covenant, and, and with Jesus right in the middle of all of that. And so many Christians—and it, it makes me weep to think of it—simply um, have never seen it like that. And and But it's there, mm-hmm. and we just need help to draw it out.
1: What would you say to someone in terms of counsel when it comes to becoming familiar with and becoming— uh, Competent in the Scriptures, as as the New Testament would put it, how should they go about it? If you're you're dealing with someone who maybe uh, came to faith later in life, uh, didn't have the experience that I had in Sunday school and Vacation Bible School and everything, all of my life uh, being taught uh, the Bible, uh, how should they? How should they sort of habituate their lives uh, toward being immersed in Scripture?
2: Yeah, I, I think being intentional about serious um, chunky Bible reading. I mean, many people have devised ways of getting through the whole Bible in a year. And I would say that's absolutely basic. It's not actually difficult to do. Mm-hmm. It's in the average printing of the Bible. That's no more than three or four pages a day. And you read that much in the newspaper or in your favorite novel or whatever it might be. Um, And it just takes a little bit of um, maybe minor reorganization of one's morning routine, or one's lunchtime routine, or one's one's evening way of life, just to say, actually, do you know what? I'm going to move the marker three or four pages further forward, and to be sensible about doing it, you know, don't try and read straight through the whole Pentateuch at one go. Read Genesis, and then read Matthew, and then read Isaiah, and then read um, Romans, and then it's a dot around. But to have a system, and there are systems which are available. many different ones. And uh, the other thing I would say is, um, whichever version of the Bible you're really familiar with, um, put that to one side and get a different translation that maybe will joggle you into seeing things a bit differently. And obviously, I have a vested interest in this, because I have my own translation of the New Testament, the Kingdom New Testament, which is out there. Um, but but anything which just enables you to say, oh, I'd never read that passage that way, and, and so on. But that, so then within that, I would say that there 's the two big things to do: one is read whole books, read first chronicles straight through without stopping, mm. but then or read James straight through without stopping, but then take key paragraphs, um, you know, eight or 10 or 12 verses, and spend a couple of hours, maybe once a week, uh, or maybe on a Sunday afternoon or whatever it is that you do, but just, just dig around with that paragraph until you feel as though you understand it from the inside, as though you could almost have written it for yourself. And that'll be tough, and it'll raise questions. And when you're doing those two exercises, the big sweep, but also the little bit where you're digging deep, then it'll compel you to go to uh, the various helps, the commentaries and so on that are out there, and maybe to get into a Bible study group with other people doing the same thing. And that way we, all, we can all go forward because we can all learn from each other. God can speak to and through all sorts and conditions of people, not only people with PhDs. Mm. Thankful for
1: that. You know, as uh, the first part of this book, uh, the New Testament in its world is is sort of dividing up uh, the volumes of your your massive multi volume project on the New Testament and the origins of of Christianity. And uh, right uh, in the middle of that is a sort of a summation of your argument in the the resurrection uh, of the Son of God. And uh, one of the things I noticed when that book came out, and and I've read pretty much everything that you've you've written over the years. Well, one of the things I've noticed, I'm one of the things I noticed was that uh, some people who were ordinarily very critical of you, uh, suddenly there seemed to be a, a unity among almost everybody in the Christian world about this book because the argument you're making was uh, about the historicity and the meaning of the resurrection in the canon, and uh, I, I often find people uh, in the secular world who aren't believers, who will ask that old question, how do we know uh, that Jesus was actually raised from the dead, and does that really matter? How would you equip somebody who maybe is starting college or is in a, in a workplace who isn't theologically trained or, or, or apologetically trained to answer that question?
2: Well, um, again, the title of the book tells its own story, the New Testament in its world, Mm -hmm. because in our world, if somebody said, I hear somebody was raised from the dead the other day, that would mean something quite different from what it would mean in the first century Jewish world, which was a world full of potential messiahs and prophets, and there were revolutionary movements with charismatic leaders. And, and uh, if you read again, if you read the pages of Josephus, the Jewish historian of the time, full of, of such characters, and then on into the next century, when the final great Jewish revolt under uh, Bar Kokhwar in the 130s AD. And as you look at those movements, you realize, hang on, they all ended with the defeat of that movement by the Romans or some other authorities. And virtually always, they ended with the violent death of the founder. And when that happened, there were two things that you could do if you were part of that movement. One, you could give up the movement and skulk off home and hope to hide and get away with your skin – The alternative would be to get another leader. And if if the person you thought was the Messiah had got the chop, then find another one, probably from within the same family. Now, here's the thing. We know that Jesus' brother, James, was the great leader in the early church in Jerusalem through the first 30 or so years of Christianity. Nobody ever said James was the Messiah. They Mm. should have done. But actually, he was known as the brother of the Messiah, because he he was and and the only explanation for why that would be is that Jesus really was raised from the dead. So this is where I say, a little bit of historical knowledge goes a long way to saying, when you really think into that situation, there is only one possible answer. Now it's always possible. This isn't a kind of a knockdown rationalist philosophical argument where if you don't agree, you must be stupid or wicked or both, mm-hmm. because actually a lot of people. Will look at that. My own philosophy tutor, who was a athe- lifelong atheist, said to me, he said, you made a very good case. I simply choose to believe that there must be some other explanation, even though I can't for the moment think what that might be. Mm. And to, to that, I say, OK, fine. But you know that you are choosing that. And it isn't because you are thinking rationally and I'm not. Um, In other words, um, these sorts of arguments are very good at what I call defeating the defeaters, showing that the skeptics don't actually have right on their side. So you have to go around the argument. And there's another book that I've done recently called History and Eschatology, just coming out at the same time, which was the Gifford Lectures um, in Aberdeen last year. And there's a whole chapter there, chapter six, which is on how we know about the resurrection and what sort of knowledge that is. So that might be helpful as well.
1: Several years ago, you did a, a book with uh, Marcus Borg, uh, oh, yeah. arguing back and forth on, on these questions of historicity and, and so forth. Do you think that that kind of Marcus Borg um, supernaturalized Christianity is going away uh, no, in a secularizing hard world?
2: Hard to say because, of course, the world both is and isn't secular. I mean, uh, secularism looks like a kind of a lull between two storms, and then you get the other storm coming back the other way. Mm -hmm. Um, And there are lots of cultural impetuses and imperatives going on right now, which are pretty ugly and uh, from various different directions. Um, I I knew Marcus quite well. He... um, I think he would have wanted to say that he did believe in some sort of supernatural. He certainly believed that Jesus was alive, even though he didn't think that involved um, the empty tomb, for instance. Um, so Marcus was not a typical rationalist or skeptic at all. Um, and he, he Marcus was, was a prayerful man. He went to church. He, he attended communion services. Um, and so I, I would I would say, and I would I said it to his face more than once, that that he was quite a muddled Christian because he hadn't actually thought through what this faith would mean. But Marcus had been very much hurt by a very conservative Christianity that he'd grown up with, and he was determined not to go back into that world, as it were. And that's the trouble, I think, particularly in America, also in Europe to a lesser extent. Many people are in this polarized thing where they were given a total supernatural worldview and they, they find that that has let them down for whatever reason, or they don't trust the people who gave it to them. Mm-hmm. And so they lurch towards, whether you call it naturalism or Epicureanism or whatever, um, and then they find it hard to put the two together. And I would say, um, in the ancient Jewish and Christian worlds, and in the modern Jewish and Christian worlds, um, God's world and our world overlap. It's not an either-or, and they're meant to go together, and Jesus brings them together. So, But I don't think there's a one-size-fits-all. I see A lot of new religious movements, people say they're spiritual but not religious as well, and uh, it's a real muddle out there at the moment, and we just have to go on sticking with the New Testament in its world. Mm -hmm. That's the way through.
1: Last year, uh, you wrote a biography of the Apostle Paul, and I I have marked uh, the last page, uh, which Mm -hmm. was just striking to me, where where you're talking about the execution of the Apostle Paul, and uh, Uh, this is what what you say— He prays the prayer over and over again. He prays it with the rhythm of his breathing. He prays it with the Spirit's breath and his innermost self. He declares his faith, his loyalty, his love one more time, one God, one Lord, one. His life's work has been to bear witness openly and unhindered to the kingdom of God and the lordship of Jesus. And that is what he now does in prayer as the executioner draws his sword. Loving this one God with his heart, his mind, and his strength, and finally with his life. Uh, that that is beautiful uh, prose that that stays with me over time. Uh, when when you think about uh, some of the arguments that take place among Christians about starting points when it comes to to understanding the New Testament, understanding the whole canon, starting with the epistles of Paul or starting with the Gospels and the life of Jesus, do you think that's a fruitful debate? And and, and how should we resolve it?
2: Oh goodness, <laughs> that's. I think it's about three or four questions hiding inside that one, <laughs> and I, I need I need to tease them. Which where would where should where would you like me to start addressing that?
1: Well, I think there are some people who would say uh, the the letters of Paul were written first, yeah. and they're they're sort of uh, clear, uh, clear and clearer in some ways in terms oh, yeah. of direct yeah. exposition. Uh, so we should start there. Uh, and others yeah. who would say, no, well, we need to start with Jesus. Uh,
2: yes. Uh, in all sorts of ways, I want to say, yes, we should start with Jesus. And the Gospels, um, as far as we know, were written later. There are some people today, including some very skeptical scholars, who think that they, the Gospels were actually written around the same time as Paul was writing his letters. And uh, uh, there's a scholar in Oxford just the other day arguing that against what he'd written in some of his earlier works, that, that, that maybe um, Paul's influence is all over the place in the New Testament and so that you can start elsewhere as well. And I think our culture needs to start with the gospels actually because if you start with Paul in our western culture the danger is to treat him in a rationalistic fashion, and uh, to imagine that he's simply setting up a system, a kind of an abstract system, mm. rather than telling the story of God and Israel and the world all focused on Jesus and then all mushrooming out through the work of Jesus' followers in the world. Whereas if you start with the Gospels, you get this narrative, and uh, you know, human beings are storytelling animals. Here is one of the greatest stories ever told. In, in all sorts of ways, we should begin there. The danger with that, then, is that we fit the Jesus story as we read it in our modern western idea of what we think Jesus has come to do which is to tell us how to go to heaven and that's that's really the, and if you've read my book surprised by hope you'll know that's just that's not what the bible teaches the bible teaches about new heavens and new earth and about resurrection into god's new creation and actually when you think that it makes everything come out differently so i would say yeah start with the gospels get to paul quite soon but but have a gospel. I mean, in my own personal reading, I read uh, each morning. I read chunks of the Old Testament, but I always read um, a chapter of the epistles, or maybe half a chapter if it's a long chapter, and then a chapter of the Gospels every day. Mm-hmm. And I, I would recommend that as as a, as a good discipline.
1: How do you how do you do that? Do you plan that ahead of time in terms of what you're going to read, or do you use um, a tool? Yeah,
2: I, I have no. I, I'm the, the marker is working through at any given moment. So mm-hmm. um, I. I read the Psalms and then the rest of the Old Testament so that I'm reading one of them in the Septuagint in the Greek and the other in the Hebrew, and then I swap and they take turn and turn about. And then I'm reading the New Testament in the Greek, and I just have one marker which runs through from Acts to Revelation, and the other marker which runs through from Matthew to John. And so mm-hmm. on a daily basis, I'm just taking the next chapter and the next chapter and the next chapter, and. Uh, I've done that for many years, and I wouldn't be without it.
1: Hmm. Do you have a, a regular uh, practice when it comes to prayer, as to how you? How yes, you do that?
2: I, I, I'm I'm a cradle Anglican, Episcopalian, and mm-hmm. I grew up with the uh, Book of Common Prayer, the the 17th century Book of Common Prayer. And uh, though I've used many other modern forms, there is a robust simplicity about the Book of Common Prayer which enables me day by day. I mean, I take the time to read the Old and New Testament readings in the original, so that takes much more time than a normal morning prayer service would take. But um, what you basically do is you're telling the whole story of Scripture every time. You sort of press your nose up against this Old Testament passage, and you can see the whole sweep from Genesis to Malachi. And then you read this New Testament passage, and you think about it. You can see the whole sweep from Matthew to Revelation. And so, Every morning, every morning, and uh, the evening is more contested because of all the other things I find myself doing, but every morning I'm basically praising God for the whole story of Scripture, and that's what the Anglican discipline of prayer is all about.
1: You know, I have told many people uh, recently that one of the most encouraging things, and I never would have thought I would be saying this, but one of the most encouraging things to me about what God seems to be doing in the world is what I see happening among um, many Anglican churches in North America, uh, church planting movements and, and vibrancy of faith and so forth. And it seems to me that a good deal of that has come as a result of... Um, Orthodox, um, faithful Anglicans being, uh, to some degree, persecuted by the the Episcopal Church uh, for a long time over their views on sexuality and and other issues. Uh, You're, as you mentioned, a lifelong Anglican. We look around, we see the Anglican Communion uh, in a a great deal of fracturing and, and controversy around the world. Where do you think that's going to end up ultimately?
2: Oh, goodness. Do you know, the last 10 years, I haven't really been involved with that because when I was Bishop of Durham, um, which ended nearly 10 years ago, um, I was involved up to the hilt in it worldwide and local, etc. And when I moved back into the academy, which was in 2010, I made a conscious decision that I wasn't going to uh, sort of make a continuing hobby of Anglican affairs. So though naturally I have observed what's going on, I haven't been closely involved. Um, But Yes, there are all sorts of strange things happening, but one needs to remind oneself again and again that the average Anglican is black and does not speak English as a mother tongue. Mm-hmm. Um, and in other words, the, the, there are more people in Anglican churches on a Sunday in Nigeria than the whole of America and Britain put together. Um, and and so that the movement is global. And one of the great things about the Anglican movement is that it's able, and I've seen this close up many times, it's able to stand in the middle, in between the Catholics on the one side and the Baptists or whoever on the other, and to be a kind of a bridge. At its best, it's because Anglicanism really says, here is Jesus, here is the gospel, here's the Bible, let's get on with it, and now who can we link arms with to left and right, as it were? And I think that's a ministry which the Anglican Communion still has, and please God will be able to exercise. And I think because it's got that very important ministry, there will be attacks. There are uh, extraordinary things happen. But church history teaches us that that dire things have happened, but God is faithful and will uh, continue to work and bless those who are faithful to him. So you don't sound
1: as though you're as hand-wringing as some Christians are about uh, the inevitability of secularization and the fall-off in church attendance and so forth.
2: Oh, no. I mean, we've seen that in Britain over the last year and I know that in America it's only just really starting to happen although I think say in the far far northwest of of America it's been going for some while Um, but uh, no because uh, when I was Bishop of Durham I saw some churches dwindling and declining, and I saw others growing and flourishing. And I had the privilege of opening some new church buildings because the existing church there wasn't big enough for all the people who wanted to come. It's, so it's not, it's, you know, the newspapers like to tell the story of dwindling congregations. And that that is a real story, certainly in Britain. But there are many, many signs of life and growth. They're just not necessarily in the places where traditional folk would like or expect to see it. Um, but but no, God isn't finished with us anything at, at all. And the Holy Spirit is at work all over the place.
1: Mm. Final question for you, Professor Wright. What is the gospel of Jesus Christ?
2: The gospel of Jesus Christ is the good news that has echoes all the way back to the book of Isaiah, that in Jesus and through his death and resurrection, the God who made the world has redeemed the world, and through His Spirit He is redeeming the world, and one day He will finally redeem the world from all that corrupts and enslaves it, making the new heavens and new earth which He's promised. In other words, the gospel is the crucified and risen Jesus is the Lord of the world, and hallelujah.
1: And if someone says to you, and how is that good news for me, how how does that apply to me?
2: Oh, Uh, How does that apply to you? Well, the answer is God is in the process of putting the world right, and he is now recruiting by his spirit through the proclamation of Jesus people who will join in this project where they have to be put right themselves in order to be part of God's putting right movement for the world. And this obviously involves believing it involves joining and being plunged into the the, the world of of the, of the family of Jesus followers and and it involves then inevitably having one's life turned upside down inside out by the holy spirit working in someone's life now I'm not a professional evangelist in the sense that I don't go around um, like some wonderful evangelists do, making this my thing. I'm basically a teacher and a pastor, which is fine as far as I'm concerned. But I do know that the announcement that the crucified Jesus is the Lord of the world has the power right there to stop people in their tracks to make them go hot and cold all over, and to sense a strange love and power come upon them and transform them. Some people sneer and scoff, but that message transforms lives.
1: Professor N.T. Wright, he is the author, along with Michael Byrd, of The New Testament in Its World, An Introduction to the History, Literature, and Theology of the First Christians. Thank you, Professor Wright, for being with us today.
2: Thank you. Very good talking to you. You as all well. All the very best to you. You, Thank you as you. well. Bye-bye.
0: You know?